Well, good morning, friends. A special welcome home to our students who just returned from Lake Ann Camp. Wave at us if you just came back. God bless you guys. Good to have you home safe and sound. Let's give them a round of applause. Yeah. It's been my custom for many years now to take a daily walk. And because of proximity to my neighborhood during these warm summer months, I just enjoy walking around my housing development. And as I do so, because I generally take the the same pathway, I can do so rather mindlessly until three weeks ago when I encountered a tyrant. You see, on a certain section of sidewalk, there's this little red-winged blackbird who has a big attitude. He's king of the world. And he doesn't want anybody walking through his territory without paying a price. Reminds me of that horror movie from Alfred Hitchcock years ago. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's called The Birds. If you've seen it, likely you've never put up a bird feeder in your backyard. (laughs) This little flying demon buzzed me angrily so many times, I felt like I was under attack from a kamikaze bomber. And I'm not exaggerating. Probably needless to say, I I don't walk that section of sidewalk anymore. (laughs) Now we smile at that, but seriously and metaphorically, for some of you, it's been bombs away from the enemy of your soul. For so long, you are actually being tempted to walk away from your faith and walk away from the Lord. Yours is not a theology on fire. Yours is a theology in the fire. It's a theology under fire. So how do we handle that? Well, here's my premise for today. We do theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. I'm talking the dark night of the soul, the dark night of suffering. So what does a theology of suffering look like? That's my assignment for this morning, answering that question. And I want to give you an example. How many of you ever heard the name Johnny Erickson Tata? Okay. Uh, Karen and I twice have had the privilege of interacting with her ever so briefly. She's a lovely, godly lady. But she's also very transparent because for 56 long years, she has been a quadriplegic. And in recent years, she's also been suffering with breast cancer. This is what she wrote. Life is war. I wake up every morning feeling besieged by various afflictions. Can you relate? Nevertheless, I see myself in the choir of Levites who marched onto the battlefield, and I think in her mind she's thinking about the battlefield of her soul. She says, I'm marching in front of Jehoshaphat's troops singing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. I love Johnny's attitude. And I love the Apostle Paul's attitude. 
And he's going to be my primary example this morning. So if you have a copy of Scripture, please join me in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12 for my message, The Grace of God in Suffering Righteously. My outline is rather simple. We're going to consider the ways in which we righteously suffer, the reasons for which we righteously suffer, and finally, the resources with which we righteously suffer. We'll start with the first, the ways. I want to give you some backstory here to the context of our passage. In Acts chapter 18, the apostle Paul was prompted by the Spirit of God to travel to the city of Corinth, He was told in advance, there are many people, God said, I have in this city, my own people. I want you to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, in obedience, went. He stayed there for about 18 months, very successfully planting a church. But then Paul left. Into that vacuum came false teachers who began to promote themselves and their false ideology that salvation is not by faith in Christ alone, but it also necessitates keeping the Old Testament law. They began to attack Paul's character. We call that an ad hominem attack. They attacked the messenger in the hopes of denigrating the message. So Paul felt the need to defend himself against their character assassination, and he does so in chapter 11, where he talks about what he went through to show his motives, his commitment, his agonies, Each of these words is pregnant with pathos. So as I read them, try to envision in your mind's eye what Paul had to go through. Paul was defamed. He was imprisoned. He was beaten with rods three different times. He was stoned. He was whipped five different times. He was shipwrecked three different times. In fact, he says, I was a day and the night out, cut adrift on the sea, not knowing if he would survive. He suffered starvation and, frankly, so much more. Now, it may be hard for us to identify with these kinds of sufferings because they're directly related to persecution. Although, if you remember my last message from a month ago, I don't think these kinds of things are very far away from the body of Christ if we continue to stand strong for the morals of the Word of God. But maybe you can better relate to another suffering Paul talked about in chapter 12 and verse 7. And let me read it for you. Paul said... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Uh, Scholars debate what what, what this thorn was. This thorn is is a word that means stake and in context lightly refers to a, a stabbing spear, a metaphor for something physical, something emotional, perhaps something spiritual or maybe something, something personal or interpersonal. Many scholars think it was physical, believing Paul is referencing perhaps his bad eyes. That's inferentially referred to in Scripture. He had bad eyesight. Maybe it's a reference to his malaria fever. Maybe it's a reference to the fact that he had migraine headaches. I mean, think with me for a moment. 
If you've been stoned and beaten with rods three times, I'm guessing he was concussed and probably suffered some kind of TBI, traumatic brain injury. This is the Apostle Paul. Empathize with what he went through. Other scholars say this was emotional or spiritual, as in being hounded by a demonic spirit. You know, that, that phrase, messenger of Satan, the word messenger, angelos, is actually translated angel. So this might have been an evil angel, an evil spirit, who somehow mysteriously was heckling and hounding the great apostle. But uh, in my counseling office, I often, I should say sometimes, experience people who feel like they're being oppressed in this way. And I, I sometimes encounter people who, who hear voices. And oftentimes it's been because they've been involved in using drugs or involved in the occult. And they've opened the door for the enemy to come in and oppress them. But many more of God's children come to me struggling with an accusing conscience, a voice inside that just cannot be quieted. Their past haunts them. They know they've sinned. They know they should not have. It may have been an egregious sin, and they just can't get past it. Listen to me carefully. They are, if they have confessed their sins, suffering unnecessarily so. Now, if you, in the spirit of 1 John 1, 9, which reads, if we confess our sins as believers, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Remember, all unrighteousness, whatever you have done, he cleanses it by the blood of Christ. And then some people just can't seem to get past this haunting idea that God is angry at them. Listen to me. If you, after you've confessed your sin in the spirit of 1 John 1, 9, continue to feel haunted, an accusing conscience, know that that, that voice does not come from God. It comes from Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. And I want you to find relief and joy and freedom in the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Go free and leave the past behind. Third possibility here is personal. John MacArthur actually believes this, this messenger of Satan was a person, maybe a false teacher stalking him. But for some of us here, it, it may be an offender who's hurt us and we just can't seem to forgive them and they're living rent-free inside of our head. Is that you? Are you here today haunted in your head because you can't forgive? Listen, friend, if you've been forgiven, you can forgive. And when you forgive, you'll find freedom. Whatever it was, the text is left purposefully vague so that we can apply it to our own suffering. And so let me just ask you, for all of you here today in this service, what are you suffering with as you listen to this message? And you all are. With what are you suffering? This, this message is for you. To my second point. Consider the reasons for which we righteously suffer. Sometimes, admittedly, it's our own fault, our own unrighteousness, which brings consequences. But remember, we can confess and we can find forgiveness. I've already implied that Paul suffered 
because of persecution from false teachers. But I want to move to another kind of reason he suffered. It was because he was exalted by God with a special revelation, a a special privilege. And we might describe it as an out-of-body experience the apostle had. And this could have led him to pride. I pick it up now in verse 7. Look at the verse. So to keep me from becoming conceited, caught up into the third heaven, into paradise, seeing and hearing things that ought not to be uttered, he could have been proud. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the thorn was given to me in the flesh. And the implication is it was given or allowed by God. But then Paul goes on to say, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So the question naturally would come, did Satan bring the thorn or did God allow it? The answer is yes. It's both end. And there's a parallel with Job in the Old Testament, that great patriarch. If you read chapter 1 of Job, you'll learn that this was a man who suffered almost more than any man in human history. And God somehow allowed the devil to do this, bringing pain and destruction to his family. He lost all of his flocks, all of his herds, all 10 of his children, seven sons, three daughters, partying in the oldest brother's house. A windstorm comes up, the walls cave in, all of them are killed in one fell swoop. And then perhaps the most egregious of these offenses, sufferings, when Satan touched Job's body and he was filled with sores from head to foot, maybe boils, and he sat on an ash heap, scraping them with pieces of broken pottery. To top it all off, his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Job knew that Satan was responsible, but he also knew that God had given permission. This is what Job said after all these things came down on his head. He said, naked came I into the world and naked will I return. He said, the Lord, and you could say this with me, the Lord gives and the Lord, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We praise him in our pain. And you ask, how in the world can a good God be involved in this kind of a situation? Well, let me show you an exchange between two godly disabled believers. I've mentioned Johnny Erickson already. She's involved in a ministry called Johnny and Friends. And then she talks with a friend named Nick Vujicic, an Australian who has a ministry called Life Without Limbs. He was born without arms and without legs. And they deal with this conundrum. Why? What's going on? What's God about? I want you to take a listen to this video. How do you answer that question, Johnny, when someone says, how could God, if there is a God, let this happen? God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Those are 10 short words that changed my life, Nick. I remember when I started asking seriously the very question you just posed to me. How could God be good and let this happen to me? And my one friend said, Johnny, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
Think about Jesus on the cross, all the things that led up to it, injustice, murder, treason, and torture. How can any of that stuff be God's will and the world's worst murder would become the world's only salvation? In this broken world, he permits what he hates to accomplish something that he loves. And although he hated my spinal cord injury, oh my goodness, what hasn't he accomplished through it? And that is a ministry to people all around the world. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. This is the real secret behind Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which many of us have committed to memory. But we often, after we quote it, stop short of going on to verse 29, which continues the thought. It says, we know that God works all things together for good to those that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose? Verse 29. For whom God did foreknow, he did predestine to be, here it is, conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The point is, we must wait for God's final purposes to be revealed. We must not judge the immediate until we see the eternal. The goal is not comfort in this life, but conformity in the next. And this life is but a brief blip on the radar screen of eternity. This isn't all we get. This is just preparation for the life to come when God makes it all right and explains all the wrongs. I want to share with you some paradigm-shifting insights to help you face your suffering. These from the pen of Randy Elkhorn, one of my favorite authors. It's in his book, If God is Good. And he draws them out of his study from the book of Job. And if you've read that, that book, you'll, you'll identify readily with what Randy says. Here we go. Number one, life is not predictable or formulaic. You know, we ask questions. God, God why this? Why now? Why again? Secondly, most of life's expectations ex expectations of sufferings are simplistic and naive, waiting to be toppled. Just consider Job's so-called friends who came to counsel him. They became miserable comforters because they accused him, you're suffering because you sinned. Wrong. Thirdly, when the day of our crisis comes, we should pour out our hearts to God who can handle our grief and even our anger. Study the Psalms of Lament. And finally, we should trust that God is working behind the scenes and that our suffering has hidden purposes that one day, even in this, even if not in this life, we will see. We know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. God's ultimate purpose is his glory and our good. Now, I have an exercise for all of you, and I'm dead serious in saying this. This is the counselor coming out in me. I give homework assignments, okay? I don't want you to leave this building and just blow off what you've heard. I want you to go home and get on a piece of paper, and on the top, there's going to be two sides to it, divide it in the middle. On the top, I want you to list your worst sufferings of life. Be honest, open. 
And then at the bottom, I want you to list some of your greatest blessings of life. And I want you to zero in on character development and Christ-likeness. Chances are, if you compare the two, you're going to find a direct linkage between some of those sufferings and some of those blessings. He used them to develop you to be more like Jesus. I'm going to use a personal illustration which involves some pain for me. Very transparent, pull back the curtain on who Kurt is. By nature, I was born a perfectionist. Do I have any fellow witnesses out there? Very shy. Unbelievably shy. A lot of people don't know that about me. Born with a strong competitive bent. You should have known my mom. I loved her to death, but man, she had a motor that wouldn't quit. The consummate farm wife. Wow. <laughs> I, I imbibed that. I wanted to excel at almost Everything it started on the farm at home, 4-H, FFA, speaking competitions, showing animals at the local county fair. It continued both in high school and college. I went aggressively after my academics and my athletic pursues, pursuits in a variety of sports. And frankly, even in ministry over the decades, it's been a goal. But what I had to realize is that there's a fine line between doing your best and finding your identity in what you do and how well you do it. And friends, that is called idolatry. And God won't tolerate that even in a preacher's life. Trusting in our own strength instead of the Lord's. Perfectionism could be called performance-based acceptance. That's when people are big and God is small, and it becomes the ruination of many people. And it took me down. So God had to humble me through challenges that I'm convinced he designed. I've, I've pulled back the curtain before briefly with the congregation years ago. Many years ago now, God allowed deep depression to be a part of that humbling process through an extremely challenging time in one of my local church ministries as their pastor. That's the top of the page. Now the bottom of the page. My dear wife, Karen, who sits down here at the front, has shared with me, and I love you for it, honey, more times than I can remember, she has said to me, Kurt, you would never have the compassion and the capacity to help people like you do now in counseling had you not gone through those deep waters. Thank you, honey, and you're exactly right. My wife is always right. <laughs> you know what? I became a wounded healer. Here's a quote worth remembering. The tools of Satan are often gifts from God disguised as pain. God's up to something in your life, your pain, your sorrow. Hang on to him. Search his face. Trust him through this storm. And it will be well with your soul. We've discussed how 
we righteously suffer, the reasons we righteously suffer. Let me, let me go to the third point. There are resources with which we righteously suffer. And I'm going to be very passionate at this point because I really want to help you. I want to drill the well deeply into the aquifer of God's resources. In fact, I want to dig deeper still into the subterranean oceans of God's inexhaustible grace. That's how we do it, by God's grace. And so I read for you, these resources are found in God. So study him. That's, that's theology, the study of God. And now from Piper, we waste our struggle if we turn inward instead of upward. How tempting to interpret all of life through the darkness of our suffering. How much better it is to focus on Jesus. Stop looking down and start looking up. We do our theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. And here is good theology. God gives us grace in our weakness so that we can glory in his strength. And to the meat of our text, here it is, verses 8 to 10. Look at it with me. Three times, Paul said, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Does that sound familiar? Didn't Jesus do that in the Garden of Gethsemane three times? But he, we're talking Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And now Paul responds in faith by saying, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Notice the contrast, constant contrast between our weakness and God's strength. I will boast the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. With what? Are you in here? Weaknesses? Insults? Hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What is grace in this context? It means divine ability, divine empowerment. I needed grace in my deepest depression. I honestly, and I'm not exaggerating, did not know if I would make it. I felt like I was going to die and afraid that I would not. But I told God, Lord, if you're looking for weakness, you found the right guy. I got nothing but weakness. I'm a professional at weakness. So I'll give you my weakness if you promise to give me your strength, your grace. And he did. And he got me through. God cannot use a person greatly until he's humbled him deeply. The way up is down, and God has to break us of our pride. He has to reduce us to weakness. Uh, just, just consider for a moment the great patriarch in, in ancient Israel. His, his name is Moses, who led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. His 120 years could be divided into three 40-year segments. Stay with me. Moses spent the first 40 years thinking he was something. The son of Pharaoh's daughter, I'm in line to be the king. And then he was driven out of the country. And he spent the next 40 years learning that he was nothing. As a shepherd herding sheep on the backside of the desert. And then the final 40 years, he found God to be everything. 
Remember his call in Exodus chapter 3? Lord, I can't do this. I've got no abilities. God said, you're the man. Remember God's revelation of his name? God said, my name is I am, implying I am whatever you need me to be. I'm God. And Moses, by his Lord's grace, was able to lead those people to the very brink of the promised land. Now, the Apostle Paul put it this way, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to finish my message by using an illustration about the the great Puritan pastor John Newton, who's best known for the hymn Amazing Grace. He testifies to how he suffered agonizing sorrow through the loss of his life as she is on her way to her deathbed through cancer. And for months, John had been agonizing as her anticipated end drew near. He paced endlessly, offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress. And this is what he came to. Look look at this quote. Then the Lord brought home to him the truth about his grace. And the thought suddenly struck John with unusual force. I love this. The promise of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I'm willing to be helped. Are you willing to be helped in your struggle, your weakness? And here was the breakthrough moment for John. He cried out, Lord, I'm helpless indeed in myself, but I am willing that you should help me. I'm willing. That's all God asks. Are you willing? And God did help John. He never missed a preaching assignment. He preached three messages while his wife lay dead in the house. And he, reached, he preached her, her funeral sermon the day in which she was buried. I don't want you to miss this takeaway because I'm really kind of talking today about anxiety. Anxiety is driven by the incessant need for self to be in control. But grace is only released when we transfer control from self to God. When we're weak, then he is strong. And that's the way of salvation, too. Salvation is not by anything we do. We can't earn it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by means of his sacrificial death and resurrection alone. And the question for all of you sitting here today, because salvation does involve surrender, you got to give up on yourself trying to prove that you're good enough. Have you trusted God in this total abandonment of self to the Savior? Remember, my friends, that, that grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. And may God help you to never forget that you do not live the Christian life in the energy of your own strength, but as Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You know, as John Newton was preparing for his home going late in life in his 80s, he was reflecting, and these famous words have come down the annals of time. I'll share them with you. Although my memory is fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior.
It really is amazing grace that saves us from our sin and sustains us in our suffering. Friends, uh, this I'm talking about is not only theology on fire, it is theology in the fire. Would you pray with me? I'm going to pray ever so briefly. And then I want you, in the quietness of this moment, to take a minute to yield control because some of you are just clutching and God's trying to, he's trying to pull your fingers open to where you can just give this situation, this problem, this suffering, whatever you're going through, just give it to God and try, stop trying to fix it yourself. Stop trying to be everything, do everything. It's all God, it's, it's not us. So would you, in this moment of quietness, would you just yield whatever you're going through, your suffering? Say, God, I'm so weak. I give you my weakness, and I ask for your strength. I ask for your grace. Give it to him and find relief by the goodness and grace of God. Father, help our people right now. So many of them, I'm aware, are going through such deep waters. They're suffering and they're clinging, clutching to control, which produces anxiety, and they have no joy and peace and no relief. There's some here who don't even know Jesus. They think they do, but they're trying to achieve it by what they do. Help them to leave off that. Leave off of self-trust and come to Christ's trust. Help them to do that in this moment as well. Speak to our hearts. Give us joy as we pray to you. And now I ask you to quietly pray, and then we'll sing aloud together.